Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, and Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took, these took Moabite wives. The name of the, one, of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on, on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was a father of Jesse, the father of David. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday afternoon service today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, welcome. And uh, just to kind of fill you in, we are going through a sermon series for Advent, and we're calling it The Mothers of Jesus because we're focusing on the five, the, the women specifically mentioned in Jesus' genealogy from Matthew 1. And today we look at the story of Ruth. Ruth. Uh, I love this story. I love the story of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth because it is such a beautiful story. For those of you who read or love stories like I do, uh, it really has it all. It has a great darkness 
which begins in great darkness. There's pain, loss, death, uncertainty, but it has heroes, not your Marvel superheroes, but the unlikeliest of heroes, a Bethlehem farmer, uh, a foreigner from Moab, a grieving widow who has lost her husband and two sons. And with these ordinary characters, God shows us a profound love story. There are no special effects or miracles. There are no extravagant balls or fairy godmothers. There aren't even any physically attractive characters. We have Boaz, an aging, unmarried man. We have Ruth, a foreigner. and There's no mention of any physical beauty. The one thing that is mentioned about her physically is that she's able to carry home by herself 80 pounds worth of grain. But what shines forth from the ordinary is a different kind of beauty, faith, character. What does this story have to do with Christmas? Everything. The message of the incarnation is Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The hope of Christmas is that into deep darkness, a light shines. There has been an unprecedented number of engagements and weddings at our church in the past year. And whenever two of you get engaged, I always say two things. Number one, congratulations. Number two, don't show the ring to my wife. It was over 10 years ago that I was ready to propose to Jeannie, finally, after years of dating. And I wanted to buy her an engagement ring, but I was a pastoral intern making $300 a month from church and bartending full-time to survive. I had no idea how I would ever buy a ring worthy of her. But my mom bailed me out. (laughs) She didn't give me a loan. She gave me her engagement ring that my grandmother handed down to her. And I looked at the ring, and it was super old, and I was like, I can't give this to Jeannie. But maybe I can do this. Maybe I can take the stone and reset it and, and, and propose with that ring. But I wasn't sure because all my friends who were getting married, they were buying these huge stones with just ungodly amounts of money. And, and this half-carat diamond that I had, it, it just looked so small in comparison. I wasn't sure what I wanted to give her. I took the ring with me to the jeweler, and I went to look at all these other rings, and I was like, I am going to go into major, major debt if I buy any of these rings. And I showed the ring I had to the jeweler, and he looked at it, and he looked at it, and then he said to me, no way. Give her this ring. Don't buy another one. And I, I was like, what? Don't you want me to buy a ring from you? 
what do you mean? And, and I asked, why? And he said, because this stone is almost perfect. And I thought, what? And what he did was he took the diamond and he laid it against the black cloth. And then he took other much bigger, very expensive rocks, uh, and he put it next to them. And then he shined a light on the, on the diamonds. And there, against the dark backdrop, with a light shining on it, through the magnifying glass that he gave me, even my untrained eyes could see the difference. And what had looked so ordinary to me suddenly looked so radiant and flawless. That's the story of Ruth. A light shining into the darkness, taking something that looks so ordinary on the surface and revealing a profound beauty. This story perfectly previews the Christmas story. It's a smaller light shining into the darkness, preparing us for the great light that is Jesus Christ. Ruth 1 begins in deep darkness. It begins with these words. In the days when the judges ruled. The story takes place during the period of the judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges you know that it's primarily about the moral decline of Israel. So if you haven't read the book of Judges, I'm going to give you a summary in a picture. A really dirty toilet flushing. Picture excrement and filth pulled into a downward spiral. That's the book of Judges. Israel's in the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness with Moses. Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan. There's the conquest of Canaan, but then Joshua dies. And after Joshua, there's no lasting leader. So what happens is there's a judge that comes along periodically and rescues Israel when they need saving. So there's a pattern in the book of Judges, and here's the pattern. Israel rebels against God. God sends a foreign nation to come and oppress Israel in judgment. Israel goes, oh, I'm sorry, God. They repent, and then God sends a judge to deliver them. And that cycle is on repeat throughout the book of Judges. But here's the thing. After a while, the people stop repenting. And the judges themselves, they become more and more immoral. The very first judge is this guy named Othniel, and he's the exact type of squeaky clean hero you would expect God to send to save his people. But the very last judge, you may have heard of him, his name is Samson, and we know that he was very morally questionable. And after Samson, no more judges. There's a repeated refrain at the end of the book of Judges it says this, everyone did what was best in his own eyes, for there was no king in the land. The end of the book of Judges, I think, is the darkest and ugliest part of the entire Bible. 
you thought last week's sermon was explicit, read the end of Judges. It ends with a horrific gang rape and murder and then a subsequent civil war. By the end of the book of Judges, Israel is every bit as sinful, wicked, and depraved as the surrounding nations. The people of God have completely lost their way. There's no moral compass left. And you know what? As we look at our world today, many of the same markers are there. Moral decay, instability, civil unrest, unchecked corruption, religious decline. These past two weeks alone, we've seen so much ugliness in the news. Children being murdered at school and at a Christmas parade. A Columbia student attacked and killed near campus. There's story after story of abuse, violence, and death, not just in the headlines, but maybe on a personal level. Maybe personally for you, the holidays are an especially difficult and dark time. Maybe you're struggling with seasonal depression or even worse. For so many, the holidays are not joyous occasions, but painful reminders of trauma and loss. What hope do we have in such darkness? How can we hold on to our faith? Well, we need the book of Ruth today. You know, one thing I love about the story of Ruth is that there are circumstances that are completely out of the character's control. There are things that characters can't do anything about. The, the story begins with famine and death. These are acts of God, as we call them. But each character in the story has to make a choice. You know, the Christian worldview, it's, it's not fatalism. It's not determinism. We're, we're not merely subject to these blind deterministic forces. We're not just bobbing on the ocean of chance. What we see is that God is providentially at work in and through all of our free human choices, our decisions, our responsibilities. Our choices matter. We have agency. But the mystery is that God is sovereign over and above, in and through all of our choices, and he works all things together for the good of those who love him. So there's a major theme addressed in the story of Ruth. It's this, against the backdrop of deep darkness, unspeakable evil depravity, we have a choice. We can choose how we will live and how we will respond to the darkness. We can embrace faith or we can abandon it. These are the choices that the characters face in the story and the choice that is put to us today. You know, we can spend an entire sermon series on the book of Ruth. The other mothers of Jesus, they get like a passage. Ruth gets an entire book. 
I can't go over all of it today. I just want to introduce the characters. I just want to highlight the choice that each one makes and see what that means for us. So we're, we're just kind of scratching the surface today. We, but I hope that I can just kind of whet your appetite so that you can dive deeper into the story on your own because it's really, really good. So very quickly, let's look at the choices made by five characters in our passage today. We have Elimelech, the one who leaves the faith. We have Orpah, the one who rejects the faith. Ruth, the one who embraces the faith. Naomi, the one who struggles with faith. And finally, Boaz, the one who exercises or demonstrates faith. These five characters. First, Elimelech. He's the first character we're introduced to in this story. During the time when the judges ruled, verse 1 says, there was a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech. We learn that he has a wife, Naomi, and two sons. And verse 2 says they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. What are Ephrathites? Well, Ephrath is just another name for Bethlehem. So this verse is kind of strange. It's like me saying they were Manhattanites in New York City, in New York State. It's just kind of redundant. Everyone knows what you mean. So why this repetition? Why, why the redundancy? Well, it's just really emphasizing Elimelech's roots. He was really from Bethlehem. In Judah, he was from there. He was rooted there. He grew up there. Uh, remember what it took for God to bring His people into the land. It was an inheritance. It was a blessing. And he, uh, this man Elimelech, he does the unthinkable. While God had commanded the Israelites to remain in the land, Elimelech leaves. He leaves Bethlehem, the city. He leaves Judah, the nation, and he goes to. Moab. Where's Moab? Well, the Moabites, they were enemies of Israel, but they were like distant relatives because the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Lot had a son named Moab through his daughter by incest. It's kind of gross. Um, His daughter's son was named Moab. So Moab, for the Israelites, it represented this sin and shame. The fact that Elimelech goes to Moab, it represents a departure from the will and the covenant of God. And it's so ironic because Elimelech's name, it literally means God is king. God is king. But when a famine arises in Bethlehem, rather than submitting to God as king, waiting for God's provision, Elimelech, he leaves his covenant relationship with God. You know, this is a guy who was born into the faith. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was raised in the Hebrew tradition. But as an adult, he departs from his faith. I wonder if anyone here can relate. Perhaps you were born into a Christian family. Maybe some time ago you were baptized as an infant. 
Maybe you attended church your entire childhood, but now, as a college student or as a young adult, you look at your friends who are not Christians, or you engage with other worldviews, and life looks so much better and easier over there. You look at the church, and all you see is famine, no nourishment, no blessings. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been hurt by other believers, and you're ready to leave the faith. If that's you, you have a choice. Trust in God as king, wait for his provision, or leave the faith. Elimelech leaves the faith. And the text isn't shy about it. He goes to Moab, which really is the road to death. His sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, but Elimelech dies. And both of his sons die before they can have any children. So about 10 years after they get to Moab, Naomi, the only one left, she hears that things are better in Bethlehem now, that God has provided plentiful food for the Israelites, so she decides to go back. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, they set out to return to Israel together, but Naomi is faced with a dilemma. You know, during this time, a woman's prospects They were heavily invested in marriage and children. There was virtually no other way for a woman to advance in society. There were no prospects for Naomi in Moab. She was too old to remarry. She had no sons to support her financially. And if Orpah and Ruth were to remarry then their responsibilities would be to the families of their new husbands, not to her. So Naomi has no choice. She has to leave Moab. At least back in Bethlehem, she might have some extended family there. And at the very least, Israel was commanded to care for widows and orphans. But... The problem is, if Orpah and Ruth go with her, those are two more mouths to feed on a very tight, fixed budget. Two more bodies to clothe and house. All while dependent completely on the charity of others. And another thing is this, Ruth and Orpah are foreigners. They would not be welcomed, really, in Israel very difficult for them to remarry. Why? Because remember, Israelites were not supposed to marry foreigners. So Orpah and Ruth, they would be daily reminders to everyone there. Wow, Naomi, she let her sons marry foreigners. So good luck getting the goodwill and charity of the people there. So Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth, Go home, my daughters. Return, each of you, to your mother's house. Return to your own people, to your own gods. Find new husbands, she's saying. 
begin new lives. And both Orpah and Ruth find themselves at a crossroads. One road leads back to their own country, their own people, the prospects of societal advancement and hope for a better life. The other road, it follows an old, depressed widow to a place they had never been to, where they would be unwelcomed, relying solely on the charity of foreigners. It represented a life of hard work, virtually no chance of remarriage and children. Here's the choice for Ruth and Orpah. Same choice for both of them. The exact same circumstances. Behind door number one, everything except God. Behind door number two, nothing except God. Everything except God or nothing except God. And what we have here is a story of conversion. Two seekers presented with the same message, the same God. One of them believes, the other does not. One of them sees in the world more value than what God provides. The other sees in God a surpassing value worth more than all of the world's charms. Orpah leaves Naomi. She returns to Moab. She rejects the faith. She will not believe in God. But Ruth embraces faith. She commits. She surrenders her life to God. Naomi tries to send her with Orpah. She says, see, your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth responds by pouring out her heart to Naomi. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Each of these statements, it's an increasing level of commitment. Where you go, I will go. That's location. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Home. Your people, my people. Identity. Your God, my God. Faith. Where you die, I will die. Life itself. Ruth is committing her life to Naomi. Body and soul, for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and in health. These sound very much like wedding vows. But she's not just committing her life to Naomi. She's committing her life to Naomi's God, whom she calls as a witness using his personal name, Yahweh. And when she says she will be buried in Naomi's land, it's the ultimate commitment in the ancient world. She is completely forsaking the gods of Moab. Ruth believes and commits her entire life to God. She embraces faith. That's Ruth. But what about Naomi? 
Well, Naomi returns to God. She returns to Bethlehem, but she's forced to do it. She does it begrudgingly. Naomi believes, but she struggles to believe. As Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, the entire town stirs with the news of their return, and they come and ask, is this Naomi? And Naomi's answer, she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You know, the name Naomi, it means pleasant. But she tells the people to call her Mara, which means bitter. Naomi is angry with God because of her situation. Even though she disobeyed God and she left Bethlehem, rather than taking responsibility for her life, she blames God for the way that things turned out. Her heart has grown hard and bitter toward God. Because of her situation, she doubts and questions God's goodness to her. And here's the choice for Naomi. Will she trust God despite her circumstances or be angry at God because of her circumstances? You know, for those of you who are struggling with your faith, for those of you who are overwhelmed by what life throws at you, for those of you who are angry and bitter toward God, here's the good news. Throughout the narrative, throughout the story, the, the storyteller, the writer, keeps coming back to Naomi. If this were a movie, the, the camera would just keep panning back to Naomi. She really is kind of the central character in this whole story. It's as though God is preoccupied with her. This lonely old woman living in a foreign land, no husband, no children, no grandchildren, no hope, no joy, only anger and bitterness, only complaints and grumbling, only frowns and tears, this woman has a special place in God's heart. Our God is a God who especially loves the widow and the orphan. God is a God who loves the weak, lifts up the broken. Naomi doesn't do anything good in this whole story. She doesn't earn anything, but entirely through the work, the blessings of others. The picture of Naomi at the end is one of joy and contentment. She's holding a baby and everyone says, Naomi has a son. If you can relate to Naomi, know this, you are loved by God. He doesn't promise to fix your circumstances, but he is in the business of renewing your joy. Choose him because he has chosen you. Last one, Boaz. Boaz is a farmer in Bethlehem. The climax of the story takes place when Ruth 
in a moment of total vulnerability in the middle of the night, goes to Boaz and asks Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. Now, what's the kinsman redeemer? What's that all about? Well, there was a custom in Israel during this time where a kinsman redeemer could choose to provide for his family members in need. So in certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer would marry the widow and raise up a child for his brother who had died childless. So in this way, the inheritance could continue to be associated with the name of the man who had died. It also provides for the widow. But this was a complete long shot for Ruth. Because Boaz was a very distant relative, not a brother of her late husband. And Ruth was a foreigner. She was really putting it all out there when she asked him to be her kinsman redeemer. And Boaz could have in that moment taken advantage of her, could have used his position of power to really take from her what he wanted not bear any of the financial obligations. He could have chosen to do nothing. He could have just said no. But what does he do? He agrees. He honors her. He puts her first. He agrees to take on all of her needs, all of her troubles, all of her burdens, as if they were his very own. Boaz demonstrates, he exercises faith. He loves the widow, sacrifices to protect her, provide for her. Rather than using his privilege for his benefit, he lays it down for the Moabite widow. And just as Ruth has this kinsman redeemer, the good news today for us, is that we also have a kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ, who also, like the characters in this story, had a choice. He could have said no. He could have had nothing to do with us. But he chooses to save us. He chooses to take all of our needs and troubles and burdens as though they were his own. He chooses to take on flesh, to become one of us, to rescue the broken, the hurting, and the needy. He lived the perfect life that we could not live, and on the cross he dies the death that we should have all died. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This light is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Will you choose him like Ruth? Follow him like Boaz? Or will you leave him like Elimelech and Orpah? Are you struggling like Naomi today? Well, this Advent season, I invite you to gaze upon the great light that shines into the deep darkness. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, your kinsman redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, 
Uh, we thank you for the hope we have in your son, Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. We thank you that he chose us. He chose to save us. Help us also to embrace you by faith. Bless us, especially this Advent season, as we together look to the light that has shined into the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.